Welcome to the Out of the Woods Podcast. The top five headlines threat hunters need to be thinking of this week. Hey everyone, welcome to another edition of the Out of the Woods Threat Hunting Podcast. This is Scott Pauley here with Lee Arkinall. How's it going, everyone? And this weekly segment features the top five stories that threat hunters need to be thinking about, as well as our thoughts on the subject and hunting strategies. So with that, let's dive into the top five threat hunting headlines for the week of July 24th, 2023. So Lee, I kind of grabbed kind of less technical ones than I normally grab. They kind of grabbed my attention. So I'll start off with the first one that I, I saw and it it pertained to um, Sakoff. And I think his first name is pronounced Ia, Ila, I don't know, Isla. I'm not good with uh, names in general, and it doesn't help. Uh, they're more foreign. I'm not saying Jackson either. So my apologies to anyone that may offend. It's not my intention. Um, but basically, the titles are gold. The title, <laughs> the article is titled. Uh, Sackoff's Revenge, jailed on treason charges, a Russian cybersecurity exec goes on the offensive. Um, and it was actually kind of an older article I pulled up, but it was related to a newer headline that I saw where basically um, his recent trials are going on or they're going to be coming and they're trying to charge him with 18 years uh, for treason. This is the article did a really... Yeah, exactly. The Group IB guy. So he's the co-founder of Group IB. Um which is kind of a Russian intel cybersecurity uh, type of group. And he's done a lot of really good work in the space, or they have. I've always really liked their reports. Um, and the article does a really good job summarizing this kind of fallout. Um, but basically, he started doing a lot of, I guess, disclosures and findings where the, you know FSB was kind of tied, or some of the FSB were tied to criminal cyber groups and ransomware groups. And... Uh, with some of his communications and things, I guess Russia kind of looked at that as treason because he's sharing how they operate. That's not how they would put it, but that's kind of, I think, why he kind of got hemmed up in a lot of this. Um, and interesting thing about uh, treason charges uh, in Russia is it, they're not public hearings. So you kind of get tried privately. Uh, and, you know, made me think about, you know, we get a lot of whistleblowers on the U.S. side. And, you know, that would be a really powerful play by government to be able to discharge whistleblowers for treason because they'd be outing information that, you know, basically is could be secretive in some way um, if not gone through the right channels and things. So either way, uh, it was a very interesting article. kind of talks through once he was in prison. They even had some releases of videos of him speaking about other things. So he was it, it didn't really cause him to back down. Um, but it's kind of a really good read, right? It kind of covers um, some of the the strategies they had to deal with. Um, kind of shows the influence on you know, depending on the government structure of different states, how they can really influence business um, and be that cybersecurity. So when you think of like cybersecurity tooling, you think about cybersecurity intel. Um, there could be some um, ties uh, depending on what state they're kind of or nation they're kind of coming from. Uh, and this was always kind of a worry and fear of a lot of folks um, in the past. And I think it's still relevant 
Uh, this is just kind of a good sign of of that type of behavior, I think. And they kind of go through, I, I don't want to go through all the details here, but I want to bring the article up. So if anyone's really interested in this really fascinating story, um, take the time to kind of pull it up and read it. Uh, and it, the, I don't know if I mentioned who it was from, but the article specifically is from the Radio Free Europe Radio Library, or Liberty. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if you had time to read over to you're familiar with this case at all, but I kind of want to bring it up just because they were, it's kind of, I guess, coming um, to when they're going to try and do everything. So, I remember a while back whenever, uh, I think, I think Group IV themselves announced it, that <clears throat> their co-founder was uh, arrested. Uh, I And I've been kind of curious as to what has uh, happened, and this kind of answers those questions. Interesting to me that the treason trials, I mean, so I guess interesting, not surprised. It seems like a way to quiet someone without any political attention or any really, I guess. Basically take away their voice and then maybe not give them a fair trial at the same time. Exactly. So if you don't like someone, just, hey, we're going to try you for treason, then boom, all of a sudden. And, I mean, it's Russia. So we, we know how they operate. We know that they've been under control of the same regime for years and years. Uh, we see what happens to their political oppositions and so on. Um, I'm not going to get into that because that's just not what we do. But what I will say is this gives us... Um, a real insight to any attempt at uh, Russian companies trying to become globalized, because I think that's one thing that really uh, that that you said that kind of pieced it together for me is they were trying to go global. They, I think, they moved their headquarters, they moved a branch down to Singapore, so they can start getting. You no, know, I mean more customers. It's still business, um, and I think maybe Russia was threatened by that, and that's why they did what they did. But there was a line in there. Uh, an article that really kind of painted a picture of what's going on as well is that he mentioned another notorious hacker driving around in his Lamborghini that has government plates on it. Um, that just, I mean, in Russia, that kind of paints the picture of look at the reward you'll get if you work with the government and do what we want you to do. Now, that is a point-in-time picture for me, personally, because if you think about organizations like that, yeah, you get your reward, but what happens whenever they want to make you the scapegoat? Um, now, just thoughts come through my head, but really, at the end of the day, this sheds light on, um, I know we always talk about advanced persistent threats and nation states and how they have time, resource, and money this just goes to show how much support that Russia actually has within itself. So that all that time, money, and resources we're talking about, this is what they can do um, from this perspective. Um, and yeah, it was a very interesting read. It was good to hear. Uh, or, I mean, he's still in jail, but I guess an update was nice. Yeah, that's something that, you know, we've kind of talked about with kind of controlling information. But when you have certain nation states that control information, you know it's even more controlling when they basically institute FUD, which is fear, uncertainty, and doubt. 
and they oh, yeah. call that out in here. And I think that that's kind of like a good calling to say, you know, if the information you're getting is full of doubt, full of uncertainty and full of fear, you almost makes you, you should almost question it more. Right. Um, because of that. So, yeah. Yeah. Now that, that's, that's a very good point. So yeah, I didn't want to I didn't want to dredge too much on that, but I saw a recent highlight and I wanted to kind of call attention back to it because I thought it was a really interesting story. So yeah, what do you got for us? So the first uh, the first article I have is called "Banking Sector Targeted in Open Source Software Supply Chain Attacks." I first found it on the Hacker News, then it actually linked itself to the um, the actual article from an uh, organization called Check Marks with an X, and they were talking about. Um, that for the first time they saw a um, a supply chain attack that was focused on the banking sector. Now, the, the article gets really technical. Actually, I was still researching this <laughs> because it, it's a little above my, or out of, it's out of my knowledge base. Um, but what it had to deal with was the NPM platform, which did a quick Google and a chat GPT that, you know, it deals with uh, package management. Um, so JavaScript libraries and tools. So it makes sense that um, this programming uh, package manager would actually be leveraged to attack. Because they talked about uh, pre-installed packages or scripts so that whenever the NPM uh, manager, the actual like database itself, or uh, would get updated. All those, um, I, I think the closest thing I can can or uh, compare this with was whenever uh, back in the day when the what the Kali Linux distro was it Kali Linux or was just a Linux distro got compromised. Someone put uh, some malicious code in it so that everyone that was running on Linux, if they updated, they received it. This was kind of that. Um, yeah. It's similar to like the apt update stuff or like yum for red hat same type of distribution right similar flavor yeah um so the organiz or they were but they were specifically targeting banks which was pretty interesting because what they used was a multi-stage attack with discovery so they figured out what operating system are you know that did uh the malicious strips land on um it of course because it was highly customized virus total didn't pick it up then they exploited the Azure's uh, content delivery network, which the the researchers called out and said this was really clever because normally Azure is uh, it bypasses all the security um, or traditional denialists because it is Azure. But then they used another open source framework called Havoc Framework, which is a another um, toolkit like Cobalt Strike, Sliver, and Brutal. So open source threat emulation, but then they actually use that in the environment. In the second attack, they created something where they first scanned a banking login page. They found a unique element ID in the HTML code, and they actually exploited that vulnerability. So a certain condition had to be met specifically for that environment for it to trigger and then steal the credentials and provide it to the malicious actor. So it was just a different sort or a different type, or I guess it was a, the same type of 
uh, open source supply chain attack, but this was the first one specifically targeting banks and going across. And it really showed the level of knowledge that the actors actually gathered before they even tried to do this. It wasn't just like a, we're going to spray and pray. It was pretty targeted attack, which, you know, at the end of the day is scary, especially if those organizations are using open source code. What did you think about it? If you had a chance to read it. Yeah, no, the, the part that I thought was really kind of entertaining was when they did discover this uh, malicious NPM package. Um, it was tied to a LinkedIn account that was associated with the bank that was being targeted. And so their first inclination was, oh, well, I wonder if they're undergoing a pen test because it's kind of so obvious to them once they dug in. And then they realized and they reached out to the bank that they were like, no, there's no pen test. And the person that was in the LinkedIn like profile was uh, not a real employee. So that kind of uh, was entertaining. Uh, but some notes on some of the techniques and stuff they use. One of the, I like the um, the pre-install function. So, you know, it's similar to when you, like, if you code in Python, you import a, import a bunch of libraries. You got to make sure the libraries are there. So sometimes there's people can um, set up, like, install scripts to basically say, hey, here's the dependencies. If you don't have them, go get them. Uh, when you do Linux updates, the similar things that there's dependencies of other packages they pull in. So I, I believe for NPM, the pre-install is kind of like that, where it's not really part of the package you're getting, but it's basically saying, hey, as part of this package, you need to make sure to install these components. And one of those components is really where it kind of pulls that in. So I think that's how it works, which is interesting to me because it's kind of like an indirect way um, to kind of not be detected because obviously if someone were to scan the package, that wouldn't stand out as malicious necessarily. Um, and then you, you called out the Azure stuff and that kind of made me think back, um, you know, running a sock and having pen tests. And one of the things that they came from was an Azure gateway and being a customer of Microsoft and using some things in Azure, uh, you know, it was a good identification as far as where we were in maturity, because naturally we want to just block IPs that are bad or communication that's bad, but we could just block Azure Gateway because we would be killing operational things too, potentially, um, and information exchange and stuff like that. So, you know, sometimes uh, some of the tools in our toolkit, you know, the simple ones don't necessarily work as well as we intend them to when the scenario is a real scenario or more real. And so we had to get more creative, like, well, okay, well, we can't block that. What are some other things we can do? So, you know, that kind of highlighted the same thing. Like he's using infrastructure that clearly can't be brought down. Um, and so that's a, a novel way or a good way um, in order to kind of achieve that, which I really liked. Um, and then lastly, you know, they talked about um, when they edited some of the function stuff associated with... Uh, the web page where he can basically scrape some things that would send creds depending on how they hit the page to whatever destination he had set up and the destination I, I feel like sometimes it's good to use attacker tools against yourself and what i mean by that is there's plenty of like web kind of crawlers or scrapers that look for urls and ip addresses listed on your web pages and if you were doing that on a regular basis that might be something to help you pick up like why do we have this specific url this new 
or IP address just listed on our page, regardless if you know what it's doing, it's a quick way to say, hey, we made it a look into that. So those are some thoughts I had when I went through this, but yeah, it's kind of an interesting article. Yeah, it's the whole idea of seeing what the attacker sees, not just what you expect them to see, or what right. you expect people to see. And uh, that's that's a very valid tactic. But yeah, I thought this was really interesting, especially one, because I didn't understand it. So one, or stand it fully. So thank you for uh, explaining that a lot better than I did. So basically you took four articles this week. <laughs> <laughs> it was just really interesting. Yeah, so it was cool. So yeah, this one, like I said, not, not super technical, but something that I, I, I kind of saw go in this direction in general. And the recent um, attack with the um, Move It extortion with Klopp ransomware group. So the title is um, called "The Klopp Gang uh, to Earn Over Seventy Five Million from Move It Extortion Attacks," and it's from Bleeping Computer, and they're basically highlighting like. There's a trend going on where not a lot of payouts are happening from ransomware. You know, they used to be about 50 so percent, and then they kind of dropped recently to like the 29 to 36 percent range, um, which is kind of important to take note because, I mean, that just means obviously this what was a new type of attack that we didn't know how to deal with, getting better at dealing with it. So the attacks are just going to change, and they're not going to keep trying the things that are just going to waste time and not, you know, produce as much money. Um, and they used to do data exfiltration um, for monetary gain, but there wasn't as much extortion. But now there's such a good pay infrastructure with cryptocurrency that ransomware is kind of established. I feel like data exfil and extortion is, um, becomes more prominent than it used to be. And now with people having protections with ransomware, with backups and or you know th things that are you know expense or dispensable, they don't really care. Um, you know they have to kind of go back to some old kind of old tricks with new new components with the data exfiltration piece. Uh, but then you know it kind of brings highlights uh, on DLP. Like I used to hate DLP because it's such a pain in the the but to get organizations to fully buy in and do it how it should be done so that it's really effective. But now, if that seems to be the, the largest monetary type gain for some of these criminal um, cyber groups, it might be more cost effective to actually invest the right amount of money to spend the time um, to do a really good implementation of DLP. Uh, because, I mean, theoretically, it looks like it would also help with ransomware because they're also trying to exfil data, right, as part of their their um, SOPs now, standard operating procedures for a lot of these groups. So uh, they kind of highlighted that for me as, hey, maybe that's kind of DLP kind of making a, a bigger comeback as far as the implementation uh, and role within the, I guess, the paradigm of cyber defense. So, um, yeah, what did you think? So uh, I will never claim to be a fortune teller or like some major strategist, but looking at the trends of how ransomware has been going recently or in even the past couple of years, I, I kind of saw this coming because first we saw a ransomware where all of a sudden it was this big scary thing that they've encrypted all your data. You have to pay, um, you know, People were paying, they were making a lot of money, 
Then the FBI kind of stood and said, hey, don't really do it. You know, let's just, you know, contact us. We'll work things out. We'll negotiate with so it kind of went that way. So it wasn't as very profitable or they were still getting some money, but not a lot. Um, and then there were those ransomware um, attacks where people would be like, oh yeah, just pay them. And then they'd get the key back and they didn't get their files back. So now there was the idea that, oh, well, you know, if people are getting ransomed, What's the chance of the encryption key that you receive actually working? So now there was doubt when it came to the operations from the ransomware groups. So now they couldn't, if they did ransomware someone, they might not get paid simply because they don't trust that they'll get their files back even if they do pay. So that's kind of going against you. Then, um, then you know, we saw some groups start doing the double extortion. We're going to encrypt your data, and then we're going to ex or we're going to Excel a bunch of stuff. Then we're going to encrypt it. So now you got to do both, right? So that was a bigger payout. Well, I think there was just a bit too much for organizations. They're like, we're not going to do all that just to get our stuff. I think this might have, um, this might have been where it was going and this might be the actual attention that organizations or that that organizations will need to actually pay up from the ransomware group's perspective and what i mean mean by that is if you notice where they're posting they're not posting in uh you know on the dark net they're not hiding this all the information they received in uh you know Forums on the internet that are only accessible through Tor and whatnot. They published it open on the internet. Correct me if I'm wrong. And yeah, I had to actually switch from Tor, I think, because it was so slow for the data to be gathered to more like open web type stuff that just made things easier to access and easier to grab. And, and in my opinion, now that that's happening... If you're an organization that has some secret sauce, whereas a bunch of proprietary information that could give you the leverage needed over your competitors, if you're now afraid that these groups are going to post their your information publicly for anyone to grab, that means you know threat actors, average Joes, your competitors, the government, who you know whoever clicks download, then that alone drives a lot more incentive to pay up, in my opinion. We always use the Coca-Cola recipe as an example, but what happens if that all of a sudden that comes out, right? Are, are, is Coke going to be superior anymore? Uh, and I actually wanted to question you about what you thought about that as well, because I found that a very interesting tactic to go public on the web. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, that's basically trying to force someone's hand by the things you describe. But it reminded me of actually, uh, I forgot the ransomware group that started doing this. But it was a very interesting tactic, and I think I talked about it with our guys back in the day. But basically, it was a group that they wanted to, you know, when there was that uh, doubt of whether or not um, people would decrypt things, 
Um, and they kind of did that good faith, hey, give us a file that you want decrypted and we'll decrypt one file for you just to prove that we will, you know, if you pay, we'll give you the keys for the rest. And I was saying, what's a, that's a very fascinating social engineering technique, not so much against necessarily companies, maybe against companies, but, you know, people to get hit personally with ransomware, because I can see the likelihood that someone would be like, well, man, I don't, I can't afford this but there's this one file that's really important because it's saying like my tax information or something that I need, some important document or record. And you basically handed them the to insight of, hey, so of all the documents this person cares about, it's this one. So there's got to be other information to that that we could then use for extortion or steal or do whatever, right? Um, so it kind of goes that same route in a way. But yeah, it's, it's, um, it's a tough market to be in when you can't control your data. And you know, we've seen where just data and metadata um, could be uh, worth more money than some intellectual property in some instances. Like insurance companies, they make more off of the metadata they can collect off of you um, than they can from you paying your insurance. So just knowing the data has so much value nowadays, um, losing your data can be uh, pretty impactful. That's true. That's a very good point. Um, and I guess follow-up question what file would you give? <laughs> It'd probably be my uh, picture of the Cyborg logo. <laughs> I, I say my show notes. Yeah. <laughs> All right, great article. I, I found that really fascinating because it was really shedding light on uh, what's going on now, especially with the companies and that are getting uh, extorted and not the size alone is crazy. Yeah, it just just shows that you know strategy has to be agile, right? And you kind of got to be thinking about problems in a fluid manner, not uh, just a problem and solve state. So, right. Well, really, I have um, to continue. I think I may have mentioned the first installment of this. Um, on the last headlines episode that I was on, um, where Sentinel Lab or Sentinel One and VX Underground have gotten together, they ran a malware research challenge to provide researchers that um, a, a platform to publish their their research uh, on a higher stage than if than normal, right? And I think we discussed this and compared it to B-Sides versus Black Hat com or like a, a security talk at a B-Sides conference versus Black Hat or RSA or the other big conferences. Well, this was, um, I believe, the third post in that series. Um, and it's by a researcher and they titled it Deconstructing PowerShell Obfuscation and Mouse Spam Campaigns. This is a great resource. Um, it, it's not very technical on the sense that it involves an attack, but from a technical perspective of understanding PowerShell obfuscation, the code or how the commands work together is phenomenal. Uh, and they go over multiple techniques of op obfuscation, some that I've used and seen in the past, some that I wasn't even aware of. Um, some of my favorites, just to call out a few, um, 
There was obfuscation technique two, which was string reversing. And by the way, as you work through this article, they're providing you the code snippets the entire way. So when they're explaining something, you can visually see it as well. So it's not just, once again, it's not one of those articles that's just, hey, this is what I did. They're giving visual representation, which is great because obfuscation technique two is string reversing. What they did was they, or the code that they found or researched was completely backwards. Um, it's a PowerShell. It uses new object commandlet. It uses the um, the download file commandlet or parameter that we normally see. And then the, the actual URL is backwards. So at first, looking at it, it doesn't make any sense. But simply by using a, um, a function within PowerShell to do right to left, it will actually spin it around and rearrange it, um, which I thought was awesome. Um, there was another one that I like to call out. Um, so, of course, base64 encoding is in there. The escape characters, I believe, that was technique seven, and it made it look like, and this might this may be dating myself, um, but it the example they showed looked like Avril Lavigne lad, letters. If you don't remember that who Avril Lavigne was, she was a punk sayer in the early two thousands, uh, skater boy, I believe. Um, but if you remember. She would do a capital letter and then a lowercase. Capital, lowercase. Like, almost like camel case, but for every other letter. Um, so the fact that they called that out, they showed you how to fix it. Um, you know, just really good techniques when you're actually looking at logs or if you're looking at code. So this goes for static analysis. This goes for dynamic analysis. Um, static analysis, you know, if you're using IDA Pro uh, and you're analyzing code. In general, like at a, you know, it's not moving, it's not executing. Uh, whereas dynamic analysis is where you drop it in a virtual machine or a malware lab, and it runs and executes and it outputs the logs that were needed. Uh, but the idea that they're highlighting the escape character, there's um, just all these are really good techniques to look for whenever you're investigating. Because personally, Coming up with an or facing an encoded command as a defender or as a defender that might not be familiar with this could be daunting. If you don't know PowerShell runs base64 by default, you might not know where to go next. Uh, and you know, this article highlight like once again, this article is just great. Um, and sorry, the one that I really wanted to call out was obfuscation technique six argument replacement. So we're very familiar with using the dash W hidden in PowerShell. So whenever you do PowerShell dash W and you type hidden next, it will hide the window from popping up. So you can do whatever you want in the background. Instead of typing hidden, they now have a one. So they've replaced it with, well, where the one is the numeric representation of hidden, but if you look at documentation, if you look at past Intel reports, a lot of the time it just says hidden because it's easy. This this really shows the need for research playing a big role in your investigation and in your hunt and in your prepping. 
and it was just it was really interesting to me to come out because you know we can type in hidden all the time and look for that but if we don't know one equals hidden we might miss it but yeah sorry really good article really fun to read uh and really thought-provoking when it comes to how can i apply this to my threat finding methodologies um but what did what did you think what was your uh, honestly it was the best culmination of majority if I, I wouldn't say all but a majority of the obfuscation techniques that i've seen in powershell um kind of in one place which is kind of crazy that you know to think if this is all one campaign like all these obfuscation techniques working together you can understand why we're like why do our you know when executives are like why do our defenses not why aren't our defenses working why is this getting past our stuff and it's like well, because it doesn't look like what it's supposed to look like, you know, eight times over. Um, so, you know, not saying you can put this kind of information directly in front of your non-technical management to have that conversation, but you can talk through this concept and you can provide just, I guess, some examples of this is kind of what it looks like and over time as you work through different obfuscations. Um, but yeah, my favorite one, because I completely forgot about it, was the one you called out, the Technique 6 I believe the argument replacement because it, I mean, they're absolutely right. Every single argument you provide has a numerical representation, you know, based on the order in which they're coded in. So, you know, like an array, you know, like one, two, three, you know, when you think of um, execution policies, you know, that's a common thing being utilized uh, by attackers when they need to execute something with PowerShell and all those execution policies, uh, that allow things to run, you can use numerical arguments as well. They don't have to use any of the the shortcut words or any of that kind of stuff. Um, so it's something now I got to think about when I'm actually doing my stuff, like how many times have I created content that I need to now think about well, what was the numerical representation of that and I need to go at it, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. but, but all really, really good techniques. Um, and what's great is they're really good obfuscation techniques in general because they're just kind of creative. Uh, you'll see this kind of stuff capture the flag stuff all the time. Um, but seeing it all tied to a real campaign, a real world scenario uh, just shows. But you know, it's funny, like there's just really cool obfuscation techniques. And I feel like as a defender, I know if I read some script or something in some area that I'm not expecting it and it looks crazy weird, I now kind of come accustomed to be like, well, that's probably bad, right? Um, and it's funny because as a human, I could do that. But as a technology, when you buy these really advanced tools, they don't look at it the same way. They don't they don't understand weird or not weird um, necessarily. And uh, so that's why they work still. I think it would be fun to, well, yes, you're definitely talking about it's going to be, that could be like a big uplift or at least a bunch of updated packages uh in the higher platform thanks to <laughs> thanks to this um but i would also i mean from a threat harm perspective you could potentially take each of these techniques and create a hypothesis to search in your environment for these specific techniques so like mm -hmm. the first example using join right if you just look for dash join in the logs you might find it. um you might need to uh, start with uh, obfuscation technique four, which is encoding base 64 first, because if they encrypt or if they encode any of this, um, you know, you might not see it because it's encoded. But I, 
would like to run a hype or create a hypothesis on each one uh, and, you know, just see what you get. Well, something else to denote um, the PowerShell script block logging, I believe, will show the executed code, not the obfuscated code. So a good way when you're looking for PowerShell detections for nefarious things is using that data source so that you don't have to worry about looking for all the different obfuscation. Now, granted, if you can identify there is obfuscation, it's a good sign that there might be something bad. But if you're looking for specific malicious techniques just with PowerShell, um, looking at the right log source can also aid in that um, that place. And then another comment on like updating hunt packages. This is what I love about hunting um, is maturing packages, right? Or maturing hunts because and that's kind of like my favorite process is to say, hey, we have something that still works really well and I learned something new that I can just apply to something that I've already tested and I know works. And I'm just kind of adding another you know, character to it, another uh, flavor. And now it works even better and is more inclusive. Absolutely. Because we know these techniques aren't probably aren't going to go away. And plus, if you're throughout hunting correctly, you're going to spend more time maturing hunts, I think, hopefully, when you get to that point, than you are creating new ones. Yeah. Cool. Now, right, all right. How are you going to wrap this uh, episode up? With another conversational article. <laughs> so this one is called Attackers Intensify DDoS Attacks with New Tactics. Um, and it's from HelpNet Security. I would say it's not my favorite article for, for one reason. Um, they're really focused on the volume in DDoS attacks and how they're increasing. And it's not that they're wrong, but they're, you know, they see UDP flood attacks as being the most common. And then um, Sin Flood being the next, which is more the TCP, right? But what's important to note is UDP flood attacks, while why they're so successful is there is no like, you can spoof all day with UDP flood attacks. It's unidirectional. You don't need to have like an open up, you know, so you can kind of do what you need to do there. But everyone at internet speeds are getting faster at home. And we know botnets and smart device nets and things like that um, are the ones that participate in these large botnets that produce this traffic. So I would expect the DDoS volume to go up, you know, our infrastructure is getting faster and not only that, but where the endpoints exist that are doing DDoS, they have faster infrastructure too. Um, and so it, it, it's one of these, this is a hard challenge, I think, for security professionals when you talk about uh, DDoS, because you can pay for services that can, re, can route things through scrubbers and other you know, resources to reduce some of those things, but at the end of the day, I feel like this is almost like a service that our, uh, and I know our providers, uh, internet service providers, ISPs, don't really want to play in this game too much unless it's like something so catastrophic because they don't want to be responsible for anything. But that is, we're getting to the point where if you really want to protect people from DDoS attacks, you kind of have to detect it where the attacks are originating before that pipe, the pipes downstream get too full because the pipes upstream are fine. They don't even really notice it. Um, it's when they all that culmination of all those pipes pushing the same, you know, destination is the issue. So, but yeah, but if they're able to filter that traffic further up, that do other 
main pipes won't get affected. Now, something else that people should be aware of is if DDoS attacks get so voluminous um, that at their targets, even to the point where like they're way oversat, like blowing things completely out of the water, there's a good chance that they could affect other services on the internet too because things use the same pipes, right? So if you congest something so much, it can have a, an, a I guess, uh, non-intended effects on other people and services. So it could grow into a bigger problem where maybe ISPs would have to kind of play a more active role in that. I don't know. Um, so kind of more an opinion piece for me, the way I look at it. Um, but something that people should be aware of is, you know, this is a problem that if you're worried about DDoSs or you don't have any kind of plan at all, just know that when they happen, they, they probably will happen in a lot more fortitude and strength. Um, and you, you might either need to be able to weather the storm well, uh, because I think the lot they did have metrics, which I thought were really good, where the the longest one was like uh, seven days, uh, and the shortest one was 16 hours. So, you know, if you could sustain a DDoS for 24 hours or a few days and it doesn't impact you too greatly, maybe you're not so concerned about how you address or where you invest your time and money for those things. But if it's something that you can't um, basically sustain that storm, then uh, you might want to come up with some good strategies for that. Yeah, those are all good points. Um, I, I, think I, I think I was surprised not to see um, like DNS amplifications, just do, you know, doing some research trying to figure out what, what were the biggest ones that were involved. And maybe it was kind of, let's fall into the UT, UDP floods. Everything that's UDP traffic kind of fall into that, so I, th I would assume they those were included. Yeah, that makes sense. That I, I was thinking they were calling out specific protocols versus just um, that would have been a great breakout uh, for sure. Because if they were able to identify the type of UDP traffic, you know, I was talking about who is responsible as far as helping with this issue, and I said ISPs. Well, if it's say like you said DNS flooding. That only usually happens successfully if there's poor configured DNS servers out there. So then it becomes onus on who has DNS publicly that can be used for this. Um, so, you know, you're right. Sometimes the uh, with your comment about the type of UDP traffic could determine, well, who's owning the services being kind of utilized for this and is it hardened correctly? So, yeah, I think that's what I would like to see, man. I'd like to see, I'd like to see what that breakout. Yeah, because be good. I think what the biggest one was off of, uh, targeted GitHub, uh, and that actually would have used meme cache or memcache amplification. It was like 1.35 terabits per second. Um, yeah, no, I, I'd like to see that. No, that's a good point. But I, I guess yeah. that's my biggest takeaway from that was I, you know. I like, you know, I like to see data. I like to see graphs. I like to figure out, or hopefully they can follow up if they, or if they're listening. Um, that'd be great if they followed up with a more specific um, breakout of that. Well, it's interesting because I remember back in the day where some denial services were really, some of them, you, you did see a mix of some application ones where there's like, you know, some sort of vulnerability and how the Windows or IIS, you know, Windows web page would run and if you hit it with a certain code it would saturate something and the application would go down not the network right so something that would affect the server 
there's none of those mentioned here. Um, I guess it says all other techniques combined account for 5%. I mean, that's pretty low. So I, th I feel like with how fast networks have gotten and how available things are to be potentially compromised to participate in these types of attacks, um, maybe those attacks aren't nearly as popular anymore. You know, the network's just too easy to utilize for these types of effects. Yeah, or maybe maybe that once they once or once those attacks were used and then they realized the vulnerability, they patched them and fixed them. And that's no longer a vulnerable. Once they happen, if it's something you can just like block, oh, someone's coming on this weird port and it's causing this problem in some instances. But yeah, I don't know. But there's a lot of speed on the net on the internet now as far as network capabilities. Um and I expect it only to get faster, not necessarily, well, I guess backbones and stuff will, will get faster, but uh, definitely faster at uh, homes and endpoints. So, yeah, that's all I got on that one. You got any other comments? No, all good here. That was... Just excited to see where the future takes us with DDoS. <laughs> right, something to look forward to. Um <laughs> uh, so just want to make some call outs. You know, we've going to Black Hat uh, Vegas pretty soon. Um, so if anyone, the, and one of our listeners uh, is listening, uh, check us out. Uh, we'll be at booth 2817. Uh, come by, talk through hunting. There's also uh, four amazing giveaways, so you can enter to win one of those. Uh, we'll also be partnering with Recorded Future to show kind of how teams can operationalize threat intelligence with behavioral threat hunting. Uh, so there'll be some awesome demos to check out as well. Uh, we will be um, putting on an exclusive happy hour event uh, with uh, Recorded Future. It should be called uh, Hunt Down a Good Time. You know, this is exclusive, invite only, but if you swing by the booth, you can get an exclusive invite to that and come join us and hang out and have, have a good time. And then also, I'll let... You know, you, Lee, I'll mention the title, but Lee is going to be doing a training. Uh, if you are able to attend any kind of trainings at Black Hat, this should be pretty good. It's called Beyond IOCs, How to Effectively Threat Hunt Using TTPs and Behaviors. And Lee, if you want to kind of do a quick plug on that. Yeah, so uh, it'll basically be two days. The first day will be a lecture where we'll discuss, you know, what threat hunting is, what are some open source resources that we can use to aid our threat hunting, especially when it comes to the planning and researching and prepping to conduct an actual threat hunt. Because uh, there's a lot of steps where I know in the workshops, if you've ever attended one, we show you how to threat hunt, but we never really show you how to get there. That's This training is kind of designed around that, where we're going to show you how to get to the point where you're going to actually conduct a threat hunt. And then we actually, we're going to, we have an Intel report that we're going to operationalize. So we're going to find the artifacts that exist within it. We're going to create some hypotheses. And then we provide you with a virtual machine that has some log files in it that we will actually uh, analyze and attack. So we'll conduct a threat hunt based off of the hypotheses we've created. We're going to report our findings. And then at the end of the day, we're going to discuss you know, what we found, what it means. On the second day, I'm going to hand the students another Intel report and they're going to work in teams together to operationalize that one. And they're going to, or after they're done, we're going to walk through hypotheses, talk about what they came up with. And then once again, they're going to threat or they're going to conduct a threat hunt on another log source 
for a long file, and they're gonna they're gonna be basically driving instead of me. So the first day will be hand holding. The second day will be a check on learning for the students to see how far they can get on their. I'm really looking forward to it, and we're actually doing two two day sessions. So we have August fifth and sixth as our first, and August seventh and eighth as our second session. Sweet. So with that, I want to thank everyone for joining our Out of the Woods Threat Hunting Podcast. I'm looking forward to syncing back up next week. And with that, that closes out our top five threat hunting headlines for the week of July 24th, 2023. Happy hunting, everyone. I hope to see you at Black Hat. Yeah, happy hunting. Thanks for listening to the Out of the Woods Podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. For more information or to connect with Cyborg Security, check us out online at www.cyborgsecurity.com and follow us on social media. We'll see you next time.